Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, where every other week we bring you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you to help you connect with where your passion meets the world's deep need. This week on the podcast, we're bringing you a conversation with three guests, Dr. Mark Yarhouse, Professor and Chair of Wheaton School of Psychology, Dr. Janet Dean, Associate Professor at Asbury University, and Dr. Steve Stratton, Professor of Counseling and Pastoral Care at Asbury Seminary. Each of our guests is very accomplished in his or her field, and I encourage you to check out the show notes for their complete bios and links to the books that they've written. I'm very excited about today's conversation. For more than a decade, this group has researched the experience of sexual minorities at faith-based colleges and universities, exploring the intersection of faith and sexuality. Their research led them to publish a book, Listening to Sexual Minorities. In today's conversation, we'll learn more about their research, their findings, and ways that we can engage the culture with intentionality, civility, and mature love. Let's listen. Well, I am so happy that you all could join us today. I'm really excited about our conversation, and this is my first time to have three podcast guests at once, so I'm really excited, and <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be a great conversation. So if we could just go around and the three of you could briefly introduce yourself, that would be awesome. So we can start with you, Dr. Yarhouse. Sure. So I'm Mark Yarhouse. I'm a professor of psychology at Wheaton College, and I direct of the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute there. Very nice. Dr. Stratton? Uh, Dr. Steve Stratton. Uh, I'm Professor of Counseling and Pastoral Care at Asbury Theological Seminary, and uh, really glad to be a part of this research team. Mm-hmm. And I'm Janet Dean. I'm an Associate Professor of Psychology at Asbury University, and then teach as an adjunct over here at Asbury Seminary. Okay. And um, I'm glad to be part of this team, too. We've been together 14, 15 years now. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad you cross the street on a regular basis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about your research today. Um, You've been investigating the experience of sexual minorities on faith-based colleges and universities. So how did you become interested in this topic? You know, the interesting thing about this, I think we've all been interested in this topic at different points, I think it's come up, but mm-hmm. but in some ways, this our research partnership got launched actually across the street at Esbury oh, University. Really? We had mm-hmm. invited Mark to come and speak. Uh, and uh, and it was, a, I had only been at the, the school for a year, so okay. I'm brand new when this all happens. And so Jan and I were both in the counseling center okay. over there. So when did it get started, what year? Oh, when, I don't know. I think I came in 2005. Right, because I started in 2004, yeah. that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's where it got, and it really began as we were thinking, wouldn't it be good to have some data about the campus? Mark and, um, uh, and a, a grad student of his had worked on a survey, and so we thought, let's, let's see if we can put it to use in preparation for Mark's uh, Staley Lecture Series and some other things that were happening. And so that was actually our first survey together, was looking at the data for Asbury University at that mm-hmm. time. And so that it would inform the conversation, and then after uh, after everything was done, we we just continued to converse and think about some of these things together, and and uh, launched from there. Actually, the survey we did in another in another iteration became the mm-hmm. survey that became part of our first research study together. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. 
So this study has been going on for 14 years now, is that? I would say our collaboration has yeah, been. Yeah, So there's like a line of research is the way I would think about that. And a line of research will have multiple studies. So we have this, the one that is featured in the book, Listening to Sexual Minorities, is a, the first two years of a okay. larger study. And we've been continuing that out to four years. But we had done other studies that go back 10 years of, uh, but they're different independent studies in a line of research. Because I think we keep realizing we could ask better questions every time we do a survey. That's true. Okay, yeah. we could do this better. So. <laughs> well, tell me about your research. What was What is the structure of your study and what is its purpose? Well, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, the research that we gathered for the book um, actually has two parts, if you will. One was an online survey that asked all sorts of questions, um, some about students, just their um, their own sense of self and how they identify and what they experience and um, how they've moved through these uh, sexual markers in their life and about their faith and uh, their mental health and what how they perceive their campus. It had all sorts of questions mm -hmm. like that. And then after they complete that, they have a choice. They can say, you know, I'd be interested in being interviewed or I wouldn't be. And so for those who were interested in being interviewed, they were then contacted by the research team and um, participated in, what, 45-minute to hour-and-a-half-long interviews wow. where they shared some of their story with us. Wow. And so then data analysis, you have the, the more objective survey part, but then we have the more... Um, the more difficult, what I think, analysis of the interview data. Wow, so you're actually hearing their voices yeah. and their perspective, mm -hmm. too. That's been a, a really rich part uh, for, for me in, in the process. We've done a lot of the qualitative analysis here at the seminary, and so a lot of our, uh, many of our students have been involved in that. And it's been uh, just a rich experience to be in a person's life, with permission, of course, but mm -hmm. but in a person's life, and to hear their story in their voice, from their perspective, and and I, it's not unusual to hear our students here at the seminary say, "This this is quite an honor, a privilege yeah. to be to hear these stories in this way." And and some of them, some of them have great funny things that are part of it. Other ones are just <laughs> poignant and and very uh, even passionate. It's so you you get that person and their experience, but it's it's really beautiful mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And and for our students, it's uh, it's been one of those things that I think we uh, they walk away feeling like I've I've really heard the voices of people who've been trying to navigate this intersection of, of mm -hmm. things. It's been it's been great mm -hmm. for our students. Hey, you mentioned the intersection, and your research talks about the complications of living at the intersection of faith and sexuality. What do you mean by the intersection? I have some follow-up questions to that, too, but let's start with what do you mean by that intersection? Well, one of the images that, um, that Steve's team came up with, uh, really from analyzing the data, was the idea that um, the students are kind of holding these different aspects of their identity, so their, their sexuality and their faith. And the image that he uh, his team came up with was, um, you know, when you move in on campus to your residence hall and you're carrying boxes onto campus to kind of move in, you're, you're sort of holding these boxes. And if you, if you will, one of those boxes is your sexuality and one of those boxes is your mm -hmm. religious faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the idea that 
you know, how, how do you hold these two things? And you don't want to spill the contents of either of them all over and, and uh, draw a lot of attention to yourself. Um, you're trying to figure it out. Um, and so that we, we is carried further in a lot of different ways throughout our writing to, to sort of share images of how people kind of put those things together or, or make sense of those two things. But that's been a pretty common way to talk about it. How are you finding that students negotiate that intersection through your research? Well, they do it differently. I think the, one of the things that really stood out to me is that there's no one student navigating these issues. There's quite a diversity of experiences. Uh, it's one of the things that really stood out to me. If there's one thing that I would say that they hold in common is that they take their faith seriously and they take their sexuality seriously mm -hmm. and they take the relationship between the two seriously. Yes. And, and I think that was a surprise for us, wasn't it? We really expected that students would end up setting one of those boxes down. And we found very few did that. And I think that we, we expected it because general culture kind of said that's the best, you know, you're going to have to drop one of these uh -huh. in order to negotiate it. So we went in anticipating that we'd find it, but within the sample we had, hardly anybody did that. Not really? in this group. And I think it's because, as Mark's saying, they were people who were who valued both so highly. They they are working very hard to, to figure out how do I hold on to both of these yeah. without dropping them. Obviously, every person would do it differently, but what were some of the the bigger ways you found that students are integrating those two? Um, we did find some patterns that we oftentimes talk about in the book. We talk about them as holding patterns or <clears throat> uh, these boxes. And I think the uh, we won't go into all of the detail about those things, but I, I think what we found was that the majority of people were trying to integrate them in some way. And so they were holding on to both and trying to find ways to negotiate them that would allow them to, to hang on to both. And, and um, there were different ways of trying to do that. Probably the one that we have found across time, and Jenny, you may speak to this more, but the, is, is the, the one that seems to have the most unsettledness about it was what we talked about as this kind of a two-box method. It was, mm -hmm. it was this mm -hmm. sense of trying to hold on to both and they're interacting but it's almost like they're, you know, they're big and they're awkward and, and they're, there's a lot of friction that's still yeah. going on between them. And, and I don't really have a good way of holding on to these very well. And so this one seems to be the, the one that, in comparison with the other one, has the most distress mm -hmm. associated with it. It's like there's not a structure. And then there are two other ones that we have that have unique structures uh, with them. There's one that, that kind of has, uh, we, we talk about in the book, is box within a box. And, yes. and it's the idea that, that there's sort of this superordinate sort of structure that, that, that helps me understand how to hold these. So for some people, it's their, their religious and spiritual view. That's the framework that gives order to, mm -hmm. to these two boxes. And there's another, the other one, there are some people where sexuality and their sexual uh, experience is what really gives order to these boxes. They, they're holding on to both, but one's a little bit more uh, dominant mm -hmm. in the way that, that works, uh, the way they order those kind of things. And then there's another one that it's a little bit more flex, it seems to be a little bit more flexible and dynamic, mm -hmm. where they don't, they don't have kind of one that orders it, but it seems to be more contextually driven. And, and so all of those three are integrating we did have a few, though, that we had one where it's like they, they just didn't know what to do with the boxes. And, and so they would 
they they weren't even interacting. It's kind of like they were very compartmentalized. Yeah. So you know, my sexuality is over here, my faith is over here, but they don't interact. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then the the other one was more along the line what we hear from general culture is that they've just dropped one of the boxes. You know, it's like uh, you know it may be somebody from a a, a very uh, from a religious or spiritual community that just says, you know, I will not be a sexual person, you know, in that mm -hmm. way. Or, mm -hmm. or somebody who's coming from a, a community that values the sexuality aspect of it to the exception of the religion and spirituality. And they're just saying, you know, I, I know what my background was, but I'm not, I, I'm just not religious or spiritual anymore, you know, uh, in some yeah. way. So, so there's a lot of ways. And I think that was the piece that was like Mark and Janet were saying is that, there's just not a monolithic view yeah. in the holding patterns or in the people. It's mm -hmm. really interesting that that it's it's so dynamic and different, even across these that hold faith and and their sexuality, and say I've, I've got to find a way to negotiate this. And and I would add some of the later analyses that we did looking at this. The folks who sat one down, or the you know the people who hold them completely apart, even though they're holding both mm -hmm. of them. In some way, both of those are ways to manage cognitive dissonance. Integrating them are ways yes. to manage cognitive dissonance. But that group where they're holding both and they're in conflict, they haven't managed that dissonance. Yeah. And I think that's why we see the increased anxiety and just the struggle yeah. in them. I think that's they our haven't suspicion. found some kind of way to resolve that for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned your book, and that's a good segue into my next question. What... Did you know you were going to write a book based on your research, and what led you to write listening to sexual minorities? I think Steve and I would answer Mark. <laughs> <laughs> we, in many ways, followed Mark's lead on this one. I don't know that we thought we were going to write a book at any time until recent, until, until very recently, because uh, these were just you know studies that we were doing, and but I think after ten years, it was like hey, we got something we could put together into an actual writing project beyond, you know, because you do, you, you publish them in peer-reviewed journals, and that's the mm -hmm. sort of the primary way that we um, communicate with our colleagues. But the reality is all of us consult. Uh, we work with churches. We work with uh, Christian colleges and universities, other institutions, and most people don't read Peer reviews. <laughs> True, but <laughs> surprising. I, I don't know why, but I, but they might read a book. And I, I, I think we thought that that could be appealing, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was a, it's a unique, uh, it's a unique read because it's mixed with. I, I wouldn't want to frighten people away because there's there's data, but the data informs. There's a lot of stories, a lot of accounts of. Uh, the people's lives. It's it's interspersed with actual the words of the students and what their life mm -hmm. is like. And there's plenty of data if you really wanted to read up on that. Yeah. But uh, it gives you the lay of the land. Pretty yeah, well. it's a very enlightening read, and I enjoyed what I did read of it to prepare for the interview. So yeah. yeah. I think some of the things that that were interesting for me. I, I think that one of the things we went into this, uh, the uh, the distress levels. For students, I think was one of the things that stood out to me as really a surprising thing is um, because as you listen to other people talk about these students uh, without necessarily getting their voices in the mix, uh, you would anticipate by some people's standards that that uh, these that the people that we're studying would be in significant 
you know, distress across the board. Mm -hmm. And I think in looking at some of the things that we were finding, we were surprised to find that there are indeed some people that are severely distressed mm -hmm. in this. And, and those cannot be ignored and it's not downplayed at all. But the percentages of that group are not as high as we thought. And, and actually about half of our sample would be, would look pretty much the same as other college students. In, in that, and that was that was that was kind of interesting to me. That was that was not what I expected going into this, but it was one of those uh, things that stood out in mm -hmm. our stuff that was was uh, kind of a fascinating new look for me. Yeah, yeah. I love to hear from each of you, Dr. Yarhouse and Dr. Dean, if there are things, what things stood out to you from your research. Well, well that was one to me as well. I mean, mm -hmm. So, sure. I mean, we're all in circles where the prevailing view is that Christian colleges, Christian universities must be nearly kind of toxic environments or almost like a public health risk to students who are, um, who are gay or who are um, navigating same-sex sexuality. And so to me, that's an empirical question. So is that the case? And to see the range of experiences and uh, results in the measures was, um, in some ways, was encouraging. I mean, uh, uh, you know, some people come to the colleges because those colleges, the the policies and the and the and the theology, the ethics undergirds their own commitments, and so they want to be in those communities. Other students, you know, would disagree with those mm -hmm. theological positions. Um, around sexual ethics and policies and so on and so forth, but they go for other reasons. And so, you know, there's not one student um, that would capture, you know, the, anybody can comment on a Christian college, but that's one point of view. And when you do studies, you find that there's a range of opinions and experiences among the very mm -hmm. students yes. people are advocating for. So that, that again, uh, stands out to just how nuanced uh, we're talking about when we talk about this population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. And looking at that, it's actually, I guess, the involvement with the, the campus that's maybe been the most interesting to me. Definitely um, the level of distress. But, you know, when we look at policies to see that it's really just a, maybe a third, if a third, of students who vocally disagree with the policies of their institutions. And when we talk to them, most of them didn't want the theological stance to change. What they wanted is more clarity on what they were allowed to do and what they weren't allowed to do. And I don't know that that's necessarily the perception that we have of these schools. Yeah. I, I think about that, and then I, I think about how do attitudes toward these schools change when students graduate? And I was really surprised to see that most students think more favorably of their school after they leave. Because that was I think, really interesting. Because I think I hear, you know, that students, like, they suffer through, these sexual minority students suffer through four years at this school, and then they're so glad that they're done. And, and sure, I'm sure that there, there are students who have that response, but the the overall data suggests actually that they leave the school and they feel better about the school when they're done. Yeah. And so that was a, a surprise to me. I think the other thing that we heard maybe the interviews, but um, just, I guess, a counter narrative, if you will, um, that students aren't really, and we've seen this the, all the time that we've been doing this research, they're not really hearing a lot of negative comments from faculty and staff. Mm -hmm. That's um, good. That the, the, the negative comments and the jokes and the derogatory remarks come peer to peer, but mm -hmm. they're not coming from mm -hmm. employees. Mm -hmm. And I, I think 
that's not what the world wants to tell us right. about this kind of environment. And I, and I think one of the things that comes out in the qualitative research is that to some degree there seems to be, uh, when it comes to those offensive or microaggressions and those kind of things that are associated with Christian communities, Christian academic communities, it, tend, it seems to get better as, peop, as the students age. And, and so, let me, I guess, I, to be more clear about that, uh, one of the funny things that came out in one of the interviews was uh, uh, a student said, now, when people come in as freshmen, you just have to understand <laughs> they don't know how to negotiate this topic very well. And so we just don't listen to them. <laughs> no, this student talking to me. We just don't listen to them. they got to grow up a little bit before... You know, that they, before yes. we kind of get it to the place where, and I think the word they used in the interviews because when they're sociable enough or socialized <laughs> enough to be able to, they're kind of enter into this discussion yes. in a way. We just disregard them for the most part <laughs> until they hilarious. get to that point. But so there's a little bit of a, you know, you kind of grow into learning how to do this. So there, there's a, uh, that was one of the things that helped as I was thinking about this is to say, at least general, generally speaking, the schools that are in, there is a, is, they are socializing people to have this conversation to some degree. They can do better. Okay. I think there still is a there still is a dominant message that schools can do better mm -hmm. at creating place for conversation and learning around these issues. But on the other hand, there are a lot of things, and I think over the ten years we would say in the research that that schools are doing better okay. at this. Uh, I think they, they're they're working to do better, mm -hmm. and we see the mm -hmm. evidence of that. Although still got some work to do and still mm -hmm. a ways to go mm -hmm. around these things. I think the other thing for me that stands out really strongly is this idea of relationality. That's exactly where I was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. You go oh, ahead. <laughs> I, I'm j I just, the one piece that stands out is how important it is to have one good relationship mm -hmm. and how that affects distress and how that affects the, the way they engage their, their experience, the way they view their experience, the idea of, of having someone that you can connect with that is a friend, mm -hmm. that uh, someone uh, with whom you can unpack some of these things in a way that gives you, uh, it's not, not judgmental or, or foreclosed, mm -hmm. but there to hear and to think with you about those kind of things. That, that kind of relationship means everything. Uh, it, 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 the amount of variance that's uh, associated with the, the relationality and it, some of those kind of pieces is just amazing. And then I don't—I mean, I don't know about you all, as you were. Yeah. So Steve mentioned earlier the idea of like microaggressions, but these are like subtle, maybe even unintended things that get said yeah. that just create a climate. So you know, if, imagine in a residence hall, if someone says. You know, stop acting so gay to somebody, and, and there it's a derogative, uh, derogatory term that means uh, stop acting so stupid. Well, what's the likelihood that a freshman who's navigating these questions is, is likely to bring that up to their yeah. um, resident assistant or someone else um, when everybody's kind of joking in that way? So it creates that climate. Um, it also makes it, uh, you know, very difficult. Um, so. To, to Steve's point, the, the, the making it or breaking it is interpersonally mediated. Like, I'm either going to have these relationships that are derogatory, these unkind things that are said, or people can do what we call micro-affirmations. They can have subtle things that are said. Yeah. There are points of encouragement that mm -hmm. say, you can talk to me. I do value you. Yes. I do see you. Uh, those things time and time again 
were lifelines for students on mm, campus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so important, and I think not always, but sometimes with the microaggressions, they might not even be realized that they that that is happening by the people who are giving them. Would you, what would you say to that, and how can we not? do those even unintentionally because that's one of my hopes for this podcast is that we learn how to navigate this conversation better and learn to be lifelines for people who are navigating this intersection. Mm-hmm. I think there's an element of putting ourselves in someone else's shoes. So what would it be like if this were true about me mm-hmm. and I heard these comments and I'm not sure that the younger students on these campuses are able to do that as well as older students are. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the developmental changes that happens mm-hmm. as they're in school. You know, We're hoping that they begin to broaden their perspectives and yeah. think about the world in different ways and think about people other than themselves. But that is a developmental process mm-hmm. um, too. But it helps, I, I think about, um, uh, this was several years ago, I was, I was teaching a class developmental psychology and, um, and I don't know that I would have noticed this before I started doing this research, but to hear the assumptions made that there's only you know one life outcome to be happy, and that's to get married and have children. And you begin to hear this from a different perspective. And I don't think anybody in the class was attempting to kind of approach this in this heterative, heteronormative sort of way. And yet that's what they were doing. And so then how do you open their eyes to kind of see that this is the message that they were sharing at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it involves listening to other voices and, and somehow, what would that be like if that were me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think students say that, that what helps is awareness. Growing awareness, mm-hmm. I think it fits with what Janet's saying, that uh, those opportunities where, whether it's programmatic or uh, other kinds of more process-related things in residence halls, or uh, but but just a sense of um, uh, you know just there's that I was trying to think of a good way to say this. Uh, if 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 colleges are raising awareness that there are people that are beyond that kind of uh, the diversity issue. You know these things, and and it's not necessarily even making the statement that that you know how we engage that process, which is a deeper discussion. But just the awareness that there are people that are just different than you are and I am, and mm-hmm. we have to be aware of that, and we have to learn about that. That's that's part of education at a higher. That's part of higher education mm-hmm. is being a part of that sort of process. Mm-hmm. As you've done your research, I don't want to cut this discussion short, so if you have anything to add, feel free before I move on to the next question. Um, As you've done your research, what might Christian LGBTQ plus students or those who are navigating life at the intersection of faith and sexuality say to their Christian academic communities? I I think, first of all, the one I think of is I think they'd say, uh, Janet mentioned that when it comes to policies, they're not necessarily looking for a change in policy. There are some that come in and yeah, want some. to engage mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them will say, and I don't, I, I don't remember percentages in this. Many of them will say that 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 they they don't like certain policies that mm-hmm. are present in that. But 
but for me, the thing that I think uh, comes out of uh, the research is this sense of, of don't create policies that make it difficult for me to be in relationship in a way that helps me un, you know, as I negotiate this mm -hmm. sort of thing. Now, the way I said that may sound like people are saying, I want, to, I want the chance to do whatever I want to do, and that's, mm -hmm. that's not what I mean in this. Mm -hmm. It's more that sense of, of uh, it's, it's more sense of I, want, I need to be able to have that one good relationship or I need to have multiple mm -hmm. relationships where I can grow in community. Mm -hmm. And so if there are policies and, and sorts of things that, that get in the way of that communal sort of in, engagement, if there mm -hmm. are things that mean I have to be silent because of my fear uh, and because I don't feel safe, as Mark was talking about, if, there, if, there are, if it's an environment that keeps me from being able to, to, uh, to talk about what's real and relevant for me, and you know, those are the things that, that uh, they would like the school to understand. You know, think about think about those from another from our perspective. How how will those things affect the my ability to be in community here? Mm -hmm. Even if you don't not, don't you don't have to change policy. Mm -hmm. You don't have to take different theological stands. But as you as those are enacted, uh, think about how those might help or hinder the communal aspect that's mm -hmm. so important mm -hmm. in making the way for learning in this area. I think. Uh, I think students would also, um, related to that, they, they want, so I mentioned earlier that they want to take their faith seriously, their sexuality seriously, mm -hmm. how they relate to each other. Well, you don't do that in isolation. That's not just a cognitive exercise you kind of figure out. I mean, to be able to process that, talk about that, um, a lot of students would, add, would want, um, yeah, a space on campus or space where they could do that, mm -hmm. you know, while they're in these Mm -hmm. four years um, and this is tricky you know I, I consulted a lot of Christian colleges and, and I'm often asked should you know should we sponsor a group should we have a group where students can kind of convene and uh, there's not a yes or no answer to that I mean, <laughs> on, on the one hand um, what students want is a place to do that um, students are going to have this conversation the question is does an institution want to shape that be a part of that convene that mm -hmm. you know how do you want to do that but students are going to talk about it anyway so you know you uh, it seems to me you want to be be a part of that at some level but the other challenge is that students don't disagree with each other and so you convene a group of students and they are here to talk about this part of their life and it can be really hard when uh, a group of students gravitate towards one maybe perspective on this topic and maybe it's more conservative for lack of a better word and students who disagree with that feel kind of like that can be threatening or maybe students are over here and it's a larger group of students who wish policies were different and mm -hmm. students who are more conservative feel like that's not safe for them sometimes and so how do they how are they in the same room and talking about these things together it takes if, a, if an institution does sponsor something like that it takes a very um, uh, wise and kind of nimble facilitator, I think, to kind of create space for everybody mm -hmm. to be in the room. Um, th those are things that are that are pretty challenging to, to yeah. work out. But the goal would be to create a culture that's committed to, depending on the institution, but committed to an orthodox view of the sexual ethic while investing intentionally in the formation of the sexual minority students. Is that is that fair? 
I think most of the schools we're researching would say that that's yeah. their mm -hmm. that's their hope. Okay. That's yeah. that's the hope, absolutely. Yeah, and creating yeah. a culture is can sometimes excuse me be be the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we we uh, we wrestle with what we talk about in the book as being there's two different these two different levels. There's kind of this macro level and this micro level of uh, at this and at the macro level. It involves a lot of conversations and relationships among higher level administrators mm -hmm. and boards and and constituents and donors. And there is a language and a conversation that goes on there. And uh, and then there's this micro level that's the conversation among students and maybe students and faculty, students and staff. Mm -hmm. and And sometimes there are conversations and maybe even publications that go out at the macro level that haven't really thought through the micro level and the impact of those kind of things. And then there are sometimes, of course, the other way around, where there are statements made and advocacy stances and those kind of things made at the micro level that, that may not you know, really uh, understand the macro sort of uh, impact of some of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that makes it hard. That makes it really difficult as you're living in a community and you're having to contend with both. And I think the institutions that I see doing this better are the ones where they're aware of both of those levels mm -hmm. and are beginning to think about how do we keep communication open so that we are able to to minister and educate uh, uh, ultimately everybody who comes to us yeah you know that's that liberal arts mm -hmm. sort of learning perspective that is a high value for all of these institutions, and so how do we how do we make space for this kind of whole person learning? Yes, is the is what we're after. Yes, that's so important. Um, this wasn't one of the podcast questions that I sent you beforehand, but Dr. Stratton and I were talking a while back about um, how your research can be misunderstood, and I wondered if you could kind of speak into that a little bit, too. I guess the, if I remember the conversation correctly, I think one of the things that I said is we, as we got into this research, we kind of laughingly said that sometimes our, our point of view doesn't please ever, anybody. <laughs> it's kind of, in some sense, it, you know, sometimes very, sometimes the groups that are very conservative look at it and feel like we're giving away too much, and sometimes the people who are, on, you know, on a more liberal or progressive side might feel like we're way too conservative still and not not making way for enough and so to, there are sometimes where where it's like nobody's happy with us. <laughs> can't please everybody <laughs> in, in that way but uh, you know I think one of the things we have to honestly say is that this is we're dealing with a sample of students that uh, and and they may not be representative across every other college university mm -hmm even every other Christian college, Catholic college and university, those kind of things. This is representative of the people we've studied. And I think honestly there, you know, we have we have to acknowledge that that uh, we're doing our best to hear the voices of the people that and to represent those voices well mm -hmm. uh, as we as we engage with them. Even I was just thinking of the, the title of the book, right? It's called Listening to Sexual Minorities and most people's experience with this topic is more framed in almost political and sort of culture war yes. discourse. So like you'll hear maybe people in different communities might say derogatory things about the gay community, like, you know, about um, 
you know, gay, gays are ruining the culture or gays are ruining marriage or something like that. And so it frames it very differently. So the idea that we're listening is um, will be <laughs> off-putting to some people. Um, but then the title is listening to sexual minorities. And so we get pushback sometimes on just that language. Like, what, what do you mean by sexual minority? Are you equating them to racial minorities? And sexual minorities is just a, a, a term that is used within psychology to describe people who experience same-sex attraction independent of a label that they use like gay or lesbian or bisexual or straight or independent of sexual behavior that they engage in and so for our purposes with christian communities it's it's an ideal phrase because a lot of our students don't engage in sexual behavior some of our students don't elect to use sexual identity labels and so what do you call them um, so this is a term that is shorthand to describe them but other people think you're making a political statement by calling them sexual minorities and you're leading the church down the wrong path. And of course, that's not our heart. You know, we're just trying to use the language of our profession, but also language that really fits with um, the communities that we're in because mm -hmm. of the, the diverse values that our sample holds. Mm -hmm. And along with that, this book, again, is about listening to these students. We're not taking a theological stance in this book and so I've heard some folks say well what do you think theologically that's not what this mm -hmm. particular book is about it's about their experience mm -hmm. and um, and so I, I think I think it would be wrong to look at this and think that we're trying to make some theological statement or political statement that's not what we're doing mm -hmm. it's about listening yeah. gathering research mm -hmm. and when I think of listening I think of conversation which is what you guys have been doing with the students that you've been inter inter interviewing, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, as we move through the interview, what does your research teach us about, we talked about it a little bit, but I wanna specifically ask you, so, um, what does your research teach us about engaging culture with a convicted civility that is also flavored with compassion? Well, I love this phrase, and I just need to give credit where credit's due, so it, it um, Richard Mao uh, used, uh, popularized that phrase, convicted civility. But when I met him, he said I actually got that from Martin Marty, so I don't know where, where he got it from. But it, so yes, I, it's a beautiful I, phrase. That's why I borrowed it, too. Put it right but but it, the idea, um, and it's funny to say this on the heels of what Janet just said, because we, we weren't making a, a theological position, but the idea of convicted civility is, I think Richard Mao would say we have a lot of Christians who are strong on convictions, but you wouldn't want them to represent you or the church to the broader culture because they're just not the most um, winsome and, and mm, gracious mm -hmm. people. On the other hand, you have Christians who are so strong on civility, you have no idea what they believe in. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is a difficult space for people right now. It how is. do you model having, having convictions and how do you engage other people who you disagree with with civility and then I added to that the idea that we should flavor that with compassion because um, you know most people don't experience what these students experience and so you know to sort of um, see through their eyes experience what they experience you know I think that should help um, help us understand a little bit better our, our communities, our environments, what it would be like to be 12 or 13 or 14 growing up in the church and find yourself attracted to people of the same sex and trying to figure out how am I going to, who do I talk to about that? Do I talk to anybody about that? Um, 
you know, and of course a lot of people don't talk to anybody about that until they leave for college, and then they leave for college, and who can I talk to there, and how do I make sense of my, the faith I was raised in? I mean, just to even imagine, like to Janet's point earlier, just to see the world through their eyes, yeah. that's compassion. Mm -hmm. that, that's a, mm -hmm. takes a kind of cognitive complexity that we really want the reader mm -hmm. to come away with. Mm -hmm. You know, you ask mm -hmm. how we got into this research. I think to some degree we heard a lot of people making statements about who these students were and what they believed and what their experience mm -hmm. was. And I know for me, I come out of a counseling center background, and, and as I talked with people who were negotiating and navigating this sort of thing, I thought, I don't think this voice is represented among the the louder voices out mm -hmm. there in culture. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's kind of, that, that for me was a big part of, of we need to listen. We mm -hmm. need to hear what mm -hmm. their experience, as opposed to listening to the, the kind of these cultural voices that are saying, I let me tell you mm -hmm. who they are without having yeah. listened mm -hmm. first. I think one of the insights that I've gotten from that and, and over our work as we've worked together over these years is what damage are those cultural voices doing to people's experience? Do you know what I mean? If, yeah. if other folks, if, if the world is telling me, or the church, whoever is saying, this is what you must be experiencing, this is how hard it must be for you, or this is how easy it must be for you, what, how does that then shape our experience? Mm -hmm. um, and, and what power does that have over, and what harm does that cause? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something about um, maybe not dictating for somebody else what it will be like, but allowing them to experience for themselves that becomes really mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's well said. I don't know if we can, I don't know if it's fair to do this, but if, if there are like three things that we could do to navigate this conversation better. So I've gotten listening and kind of dealing with the problem of language and being aware of what our words are actually saying. Would you add anything to that if there were like three things that you wanted me and the people listening to be like, this is what you can do to do this better? Well, we, we closed the book with some recommendations that might <clears throat> at least set off this discussion a little bit. Um, but we, we talked about, yeah, about being uh, relational, that mm -hmm. the relationships make or break people's experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so. Focus on that. If someone were to share this story with you, you know, thank them for sh trusting you with their story and yeah. honor yes. that. Uh, that is, a, in some ways, a very sacred moment for someone to be vulnerable, given everything we've mm -hmm. talked about. So mm -hmm. the relationship is important. Another one is don't assume a person doesn't have an active and vibrant faith because mm -hmm. they're navigating this space. Mm -hmm. As we found, they have both, and they're trying mm -hmm. to figure it out. So we talk about being formational and really helping Christian communities take seriously these students desire to deepen their walk with Christ so don't I think one mistake Christians often make is they they, they sort of force people to like get this right and then we'll talk about your relationship with Christ mm, I would flip right. that around and say disciple them anybody any student who wants to know Christ mm -hmm. more help deepen that relationship with Christ in fact it's that relationship with yeah. Christ through the Holy Spirit that will likely inform future decision-making. So yeah, right. why not invest in that? Great statement. Um, mm -hmm. So there's the relational piece, the formational, and we talk about an issue of, um, we talked about like safety, but like being emotionally safe in the room. So as, a, as an like I teach all the time as a, as a professor, you teach differently when you know one of the students in your room is navigating this mm -hmm. topic. Mm -hmm. Now I often don't know but I go into a class assuming there will at least be one or two students who are navigating. And so you teach different, you prepare your lecture differently. And you see in our book and you'd see in our 
presentations, we're always drawing quotes from the actual students so that their voices are heard. Mm -hmm. Someone listening to us or reading the book would say, okay, that might not be exactly my experience, but at least they're, they're drawing on people like me whose voices mm -hmm. uh, resonate. I mean, those are things that create safety, emotional mm -hmm. safety mm -hmm. for people, mm -hmm. and I think that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot to about who I am when I enter into these conversations and am I am I comfortable with my own faith and my own beliefs so much so that I don't have a need to share that with someone else so much so that I can create space in myself mm -hmm. to hold another person's story and what then does that look like and how do I get there and I think a lot of times when we enter into conversations there's just this need to to make sure that people know what I think about things, and how do I how do I set that aside? How how do I become comfortable being with anybody, no matter what they believe, without having that need to kind of force myself on them? Mm -hmm. um, that kind mm -hmm. of inner hospitality. I don't know how else yeah. to say it. Yeah. yeah, I like that idea. It's a, and I think that is something I'm I've grown in across time. I'm, again, I'm always trying to be better at that, but. And we hear it in the, from the students as well. It's the, the diff, they make a distinction oftentimes between those people who want to be in conversation, uh, but it's like they have a, an end point. It's like, at some point, I've got to tell you that what you're doing is wrong, and this has got, you know, this mm -hmm. has to change. I want you to know that. that it's, as opposed to those people who, they may, they may say, I understand what they believe, but it's like they, they were really trying to understand me, to know me, uh, and to know me in this area, and to know me beyond this area. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of, of engagement and, that people are looking for. And I think the students stand out in saying, to have faculty and staff and administrators who are engaging them for that reason, other than to just try to correct uh, I think that that was that's powerful mm -hmm. there in, on these campuses when there is that opportunity. Yeah. So if we were going to take what you all have learned in your research and what you're still learning, because it's an mm -hmm. ongoing research project, what have you learned that may be helpful to the church to navigate this issue as well? The, the church is tricky. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the differences is the church is multi generational. So you have three or four generations all converging on a Sunday morning and, and meeting together for worship. And uh, it's, what I mean by that is even the language that we're using, like, you know, sexual minority, gay, same-sex attracted, like the, the language is people have preferences across generations for how they even talk about this topic. And we're just talking about how to talk about it, <laughs> let alone what we decided about. But talking about it is the first, one of the yeah. first steps. Mm -hmm. exactly. Because I think a lot of times... People, I know I have been afraid to talk about this topic because I haven't known how to talk about talk about it, which is why I'm really excited about this conversation because it's helpful just to me. So, yeah. sorry I interrupted you. No, Go no. ahead. I'm really bad at that. Yeah. So. I, I just so I encourage in church settings for people to give others latitude in language and how they're going to talk about their own experiences. I think sometimes in church settings, there's a added pressure to to shape how the discussion is going to take place so it becomes mm -hmm. kind of top-down. So only refer to yourself this way, only describe yourself this way. 
And we see a range of ways in which students want to talk about their experiences. And so rather than dictate the terms to the, to the people within your church, it might be better to kind of um, create a space where people can gravitate to certain language. They're probably mm -hmm. going to do that just by um, the cultural mores of that community, the generational differences, uh, changing vernacular, you know. Like, like I often give this example that there's no 14-year-old you're going to talk to who would ever say of their sexual orientation that they have a homosexual orientation. It's just that word has fallen out of the vernacular. But a grandparent in that same church might use that language. Mm -hmm. But a 14-year-old would say, if you ask them for some reason about their sexual orientation, <laughs> <laughs> don't recommend it. <laughs> they would say that they're, they're gay. Like they, they would just say, because that's the vernacular. Okay. But to another generation, gay probably would have met promiscuous or it had other connotations mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. So it, it, the same language will mean different things in the church. So that's something just to be, I think, just really attuned to and not mm -hmm. to crack down on, but be aware of. That, that would go far in a lot of church mm -hmm. settings. The emotional safety thing I talked about, you know, just as I, as a professor, as I teach, well, if I'm, if I'm preaching from the pulpit, that's going to come across at that macro level of kind of power-based authority, and we, we need good preaching, but I think you preach differently when you remember that a percentage of people listening to you right now are navigating these questions. Mm -hmm. So how would you season the word that you're giving your congregation given the lived reality that there are people figuring this out right now, and some are in distress. So how would you do that differently in light of that reality? Mm -hmm. Things like that would come to my mind. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense. Uh, mm -hmm. We just got back from faculty retreat where uh, David Kinneman was talking about Barna's research right now. And, and I was just fascinated because looking at the millennials and the, the Gen Z data <laughs> that they have, uh, that people are delaying marriage and they're staying single mm -hmm. and, and never married for longer. And I think one of the things that I would suggest, uh, and I don't know that we've talked about this very much, but uh, one of the things I would suggest is that I think the church is going to have to wrestle with how they engage singleness mm -hmm. in a new way. Mm -hmm. And I say that because it's, it's extremely important not uh, to look at what that will do for students that we're looking at that are navigating mm -hmm. this, and I, and I think it's a, I think it's needed. I, th I mean, mm -hmm. even even if that was not happening, I think this is needed, and I, I really appreciate the writing around uh, that's begun to grow out of West Hills' work around spiritual mm -hmm. friendship and other people that are bringing that mm -hmm. conversation, and helping the church to think about again, what does uh, what does singleness mean? when we have emphasized, and some people might say overemphasized at times, a, uh, we become so marriage-centric right. within the context yes. of our churches. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is one of those things for me, and I'm not speaking for Mark or Janet here. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can nuance this better than I am probably doing this right now. But I do think, at least as we talk about here at the seminary, beginning to think with them about this is, this is a place where we've got to do more thinking. We, it's, mm -hmm. it's been a subcategory as opposed to something that's been on our radar in a way that it, it's going to have to be. But I think it also ushers in a different kind of narrative for, for people that are navigating uh, sexual identity mm -hmm. and some of these mm -hmm. issues as mm -hmm. well. I don't, know, I don't know what you all think about that. This has been something that I've seen and I've talked to, to folks about, is that the church seems centered around that family structure. and Everything we do is around couples or families. 
and it just doesn't fit for many people, not only the sexual minority folks, but other folks. And then, so what would that look like? What would it look to, like to structure Sunday school differently or small groups differently? And how do the we how do we then build relationships and friendships that matter, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's really a truly good intimate connection. Yes. That's outside of the marriage relationship, mm-hmm. and I don't think we know how to do that. I think the only thing I'd add to that, I completely agree, that, that, that when we overemphasize um, couples and families, we put an added pressure on people navigating this space, that, that there's kind of a two-tier way to be in the local church. You can be married and sort of at that top tier, or you can be single and sort of until you get married and you can join the top, <laughs> join that top tier. But then, then for, so I, I think of you know, sexual minorities navigating this space as a subset of single people in the church. Mm-hmm. And if you think about them that way, not only will you help a lot of other single people, but they'll yeah. be also, you'll be speaking into their lives in meaningful ways. Otherwise, you're just putting undue pressure on them to, to marry heterosexually and to kind of go down that path. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other set of, uh, of mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or to kind of act like this isn't a part of their life or that there's this isn't a real uh, genuine uh, topic that they're navigating. Mm-hmm. So. It's interesting that I have seen sometimes when um, churches try to ch- challenge this that they um, almost begin to speak negatively about marriage. Marriage is so hard. It's so difficult. Why would you <laughs> want to do that? And I really think this downplay. needs to be a both and. Mm-hmm. Marriage is good, but singleness is also good. Mm-hmm. They're both good. Both and I think that's hard for us to hold both in mind at the same time. Mm-hmm. I would think the other piece, at least for me as, as I work with churches and think with churches about these issues is, is beginning to understand that, that, that reaching out and, and, and creating ways to, to help persons in their sanctifying journey uh, uh, is, is something that we do because they need us in Christian community but also we need them mm-hmm. in Christian community. And I, I know, you know, we've talked about that and I know you, you, you had a very poignant experience, you know, with, with saying to somebody, you know, we need your story, you know, you need to be heard and so in, in that. And I think oftentimes we don't do a good job of that within the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've had conversations with people saying, you know, uh, these persons have nothing to share with me. There's, there's nothing valuable of their experience. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think not only is that a terrible thing to say, yes. <laughs> it's terribly isolating and ostracizing, mm-hmm. but, but it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think to be able to see God's sanctifying work in the heart and life of people coming at this from very different and diverse yes. perspectives gives us a view of God and his his ability to grow us and to to love us into the into the persons he dreams of us being uh, and, I, and I think we lose some picture some richness and I, and I think to some degree because of the secretiveness and the way we've managed this in some areas in the church mm-hmm. oftentimes we don't have another narrative because mm-hmm. we we've we've kind of uh, we've not seen it. We haven't created a space to see how God works in this. And so now, I think general, I think sometimes we don't, 
if you ask people, what does this look like, mm -hmm. the sanctifying journey for mm -hmm. people who are sexual minorities, we kind of go, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Because, I, I mean, again, I, I don't, it just seems to me that as we're thinking about the church, it's a way of being what the church is always meant to be and what we desire to be. I, I mean, mm -hmm. it's not, I don't, I, I think that's a, it's, mm -hmm. it, churches really want to be transformational. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but this is a complicated issue. Yeah. Complicated issue for that. Yeah. Well, I'm very grateful for your time today and the insight that you shared with us. And I just, as we went through the questions, is there anything that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to speak to? And if not, that's okay. I just wanted to open up for that, <laughs> that too. Yeah, thanks. So. Oh, good. Okay. Good questions. Thank you. Yes. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to come by. So I didn't thank give you. you these, and I maybe should have, so you can be mad at me later. But <laughs> um, our podcast is called The Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast. So I want to ask each of you, what's a practice, spiritual or otherwise, that is helping you thrive in your life or ministry? So it can be serious, or it can just be, I Netflix and chill. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about means of grace, I don't think I think of Netflix in that category. Category, but that's it could be it could be uh, I I can speak for me I, yeah. I think one of the things that that has been so profound over the last ten years is an investment in contemplative prayer mm. uh, and and that's been a that's been a real life changing. Uh, engagement for me, uh, so much so that my wife recognizes when when I'm not doing that, <laughs> it's the way, when I'm not engaged in that. So, and I, I and think you appreciate it when she points that out. Absolutely. Well, I don't know. It depends on how she points it out. But that's. <laughs> but the, uh, to be honest, I think that's uh, it. Does show up. It's been one of those profound means of grace that the, the way that you know as wesley talks about that idea that an avenue that we give to god so he can administer mm -hmm. his grace into those areas of life and for me that's been really pivotal mm -hmm. and uh so it's uh for me that's the first thing that pops into my mind because mm -hmm. it's been mm -hmm. so rich uh mm -hmm. for my own formation yeah. and development yeah i love that so I had two pop okay. into mind. Can yeah. I do two? Yeah, you can do two. One is just a really simple one. Both of these, I feel like I'm confessing. So, <laughs> but um, over the past couple of years, I've been very intentional about being careful with my sleep. It has made a world of difference. Really? So we could talk about that. We could have a whole other podcast just on that. That is fascinating. I would love that. So what do you mean by being careful with your sleep? Making sure that I'm getting enough sleep every okay. night, that I'm waking up at the same time every morning, Okay. And just really being careful, not sacrificing that piece. Okay. So I don't know if you've noticed that change in me, but it's just, it, it's, it matters. Yeah. So it's just very simple sleep. Okay. That's cool. I've been too sleepy to notice. <laughs> <laughs> so. And the, the, the other thing more um, for me, I, I actually tend to be a very private person, although people don't know that about me, but very private person, and I have intentionally started to engage in some discipleship where I allow myself to be known, like oh, really, really that's known. That's hard. And that's been going on for about three or four years, and it it has been incredibly good for me. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, that's so that awesome. would be the practice. It, it just something, you know, and you go through seasons of life where you do more of that, and then you do less of that, mm -hmm. and then more... And um, and I'm in that place where I'm engaged in that right now, mm -hmm. and it makes a difference. Yeah, mm. yeah, it mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yes. 
Yeah, I, um, I made a move recently, and one of my uh, colleagues from uh, a friend of mine from our previous church just encouraged me to continue to do daily, weekly, monthly, and annual sort of spiritual exercises that are sort of life-giving and uh, it really made me think what am I what do I do in, in those rhythms and one thing that I do um, at least annually I usually take my research institute on a spiritual retreat and we'll go for a part of a day or uh, longer and just take some time to kind of structure some time away for prayer and reflection on the work that we're doing and um, kind of ground our work in that uh, reflection on God's kind of call on us to care for the people that we're, um, that we uh, that we end up studying and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say weekly, I really like adoration. I like to spend time mm-hmm. um, before uh, either the cross or a consecrated host. Just the idea that the, there's a real spiritual presence and uh, the elements, um, and just to be uh, quiet before God and do some readings and prayer. Mm, yeah yeah beautiful so thank you all so very much for taking the time to share it's very much appreciated thank you thank Thank you. you thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation very grateful for dr yarhouse dr dean and dr stratton and appreciate their time and being on the podcast It's important to listen and learn from people who have different experiences than ourselves. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. New podcast episodes release every other week and you won't want to miss out. Subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Have a great day, y'all, and go do something that helps you thrive.